In today's episode of my podcast, Cook, Eat, Nourish, with me, Fiona Staunton of Fiona's Food for Life, I'm chatting with dietitians Hilary Wright and Elizabeth Ward, co-authors of the book, The Menopause Diet Plan. Today, we're talking about weight gain, hot flushes, visceral fat, diabetes, and snacking. Make sure you listen to hear all of their top tips to health for healthy aging. Hope you enjoy. So welcome. Um, it's fantastic to have you on my podcast today. Uh, Hilary and Liz, would you like to introduce yourselves to my audience? Sure, I'll go first. This is Liz. I'm a registered dietitian and um, I live in the Boston area, close to Hillary. Mm-hmm. And I've worked in nutrition communications for the last 20 years. And before that, saw patients and specialize in women's health issues and weight control. And Hillary and I are the co-authors of the Menopause Diet Plan, and we've known each other since college. A long time ago. (laughs) For you. Um, (laughs) Um, My name's Hillary Wright. I'm also a registered dietitian in the Boston area. I have a private nutrition counseling practice that I've had for 16 years. I'm the director of nutrition for the Wellness Center at Boston IDF, where I specialize in women's health and other conditions that can affect fertility, such as polycystic ovary syndrome, which is a major risk factor for diabetes and other chronic health problems. So it's basically chronic disease um, management. I'm also a part-time nutritionist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and the author of three books, The Menopause Diet Plan with Liz, a book called The Pre-Diabetes Diet Plan about diabetes prevention, and one on polycystic ovary syndrome called The PCOS Diet Plan. Fantastic, ladies. So thank you so much for coming on to me today. Um, Would you mind telling me what made you write the book? (laughs) Well, you know, we were both at a point professionally where we were thinking, what's our next, you know, project going to be? And we'd always talked about doing something together because we had this mutual experience in women's health as part of pretty much everything that we've done professionally to this point. And so we were like, okay, uh, you know, editors always say, and our publishers always say, write about what you know. And so Liz and I were kind of fresh off the boat with dealing with the menopause stuff. And so we thought this is our time to actually write about this and actually get at the science because there's so much misinformation out there that we're like, somebody has to be the evidence-based voice here. So why not us? Yeah, there definitely was a void. I mean, there really was, you know, was some wacky information about um, what to eat and other lifestyle habits during the perimenopause uh, period. And, you know, Hillary and I did a lot of research and every single piece of research is in that book. Um, So to be sure that we were really, really solid on you know what we know so far about um, nutrition and the midlife menopause transition, and it doesn't have to be at midlife. You mentioned sudden menopause. Um, there's also premature menopause, um, but it, for most women, it does happen. You know, starting in the mid 40s. Okay, brilliant. So the main symptom that I or main issue I get from a lot of clients is I'm just gaining weight. It's all around the middle, no matter what I do, I can't get rid of it, etc. Tell us how we can solve that. 
<laughs> well, it's not fully solvable is the first thing that people need to appreciate because hormones change as women age and declining levels of estrogen over time tend to redirect body fat to the middle. Now, there's a lot that you can do to mediate how much of that accrues. But in our experience, you know, there is a lot going on between like your mid 40s and your mid 50s that can collude to contribute to weight gain. And it just happens to accrue in the middle um, as a result of the hormone shifts. But when we, you know, we firmly believe that a lot of women kind of wait too long to start paying attention to it. It's when they start to be like, oh my God, I think I'm in menopause. When in fact, research tells us that um, women start to gain weight uh, often in like their mid forties. And it just somehow doesn't often enter consciousness until periods really start to get irregular and you're rounding the bend to menopause. But in reality, the hormone changes and along with that, some body composition changes and maybe lifestyle changes that come along with midlife have been you know, poking at you, um, causing some uh, changes in your metabolism and weight gain. So we just did a reel about this um, that we posted on our Instagram yesterday about visceral fat. And that's what I think you're, you know, alluding to. So women do gain visceral fat. Um, They tend to have a much lower percentage of visceral or abdominal fat than men throughout life. And then at midlife, that changes, as Hillary just said. Um, a decline in estrogen seems to make any extra weight or m- most of the extra weight go to the abdomen. So you can actually um, get a bigger belly even if you haven't gained any weight. So it's so important to look at what's going on in your belly from a health uh, standpoint. So not, I know no one likes it because their clothes don't fit. I mean, it's happened to both of us. We're, 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 it happens to most every you know, midlife menopausal woman. Um, we don't like it, but um, as Hillary said, you're not going to f- to totally get rid of that, but you can mobilize that fat through, you know, regular diet, uh, regular exercise, you know, a healthy diet um, and controlling your stress and sleeping and, you know, not smoking. You know, maybe getting serious about the things a lot of people have been are, you know, aware that they should be doing for a long time, but this is when it really comes home to roost if you've been kicking the can down the road, you know, but again, Liz and I are encouraging women to start paying attention to this a lot sooner, mm-hmm. you know, maybe more in your mid forties and understand what you could get away with in your twenties and thirties. The reality is different when you start to get into your forties. So the sooner you kind of acknowledge that and kind of get on the bandwagon, the, the, less you're gonna have to mediate the effects if you wait too long and then say oh god now i've got to lose chunk of weight mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well i guess in ireland we have uh, a lot of menopause education coming out and it's it's great to see um and that's a way of of getting the message through to people but how um i suppose you're probably doing it through your social media really trying to get the message out to people at an earlier age are you well, yeah, that's what we, we, we try to do all the time. Um, and, it, you know, it's not easy because, as Hillary said, there's so much going on in a woman's life in her 40s and 50s and late 50s and even early 60s. There's a lot of, uh, you know, changes maybe in her family or kids are, you know, getting ready to go to, off to college. They may uh, She may be um, taking care of an elderly 
uh, parent or an ailing spouse uh, uh, at the same time trying to juggle her career or you know marital issues or retirement issues. And so there's a lot swimming around there in that head and there's a lot going on. Um, so, so that, you know, you can't, you can't always blame women or, or say to women, oh, gee, you should really be thinking about your health, you know, 20 years down the road, because they sometimes are struggling to make it through the day. Yes, I agree. Okay. So you have mentioned that, um, like health exercise, a healthy diet, avoiding smoking, etc. those type of things are beneficial in a short space of time can you say what a healthy diet would look like so you know the interesting yet not surprising thing is this plant forward eating um plant-based eating which does not at all mean you need to be a vegetarian um as with other chronic health problems appears to be best for uh women going through the menopause transition so a lot of people think that means you do need to be a vegetarian or a vegan, and it basically means you want to aim for about two-thirds to three-quarters of your food choices from plant foods, um, you know, less processed as often as possible. Um, you know, protein is um, also important, remains important, and requirements may actually go up a little bit. So including healthy sources of protein like seafood and poultry and plant sources of protein, um, minimizing meat, um, focusing on, you know, healthy fats and nuts and seeds and beans, you know, all of these things that probably, you know, the most studied version of this is the Mediterranean diet. Um, but we try to provide really uh, translatable visuals to help women adopt a plant-based diet that's not an all or nothing prospect, you know. So it's, even though the word diet is in the book, it's not a diet from the standpoint of here's this radically different thing that you should just do for a period of time lose your weight or whatever, um, you know, we're interested in lasting sustainable change that's going to be healthy for aging for the rest of your life. Um, but it's it's definitely much more about eat more of certain things than eat less of others. You know, we believe in positive messaging. And I always tell my clients, I'm much more interested in what you are eating than what you're avoiding, because you may not, you know, eat fast food or drink soda, but that doesn't mean you're eating at least a couple servings of fruits, at least three servings of vegetables, you know, trying to make half your grains, whole grains, like those are steps you actively actively have to adopt um, to reach kind of that definition of plant-based eating. Okay, so that's great. A good guideline, two thirds to three quarters plant-based foods. Correct. And that's your, that's the way you cook. So yeah, that's, that's great, <laughs> great line what you're thinking. <laughs> So um, hot flushes, hot flashes. Um, what would you recommend food wise for that? So um, hot flashes are <laughs> more than actually more than annoying. They really are. Um, if you're going through natural menopause, potentially a sign of, uh, you know, the fact that you may have cardiovascular disease or, you know, brain issues like dementia later on in life. So they should be taken seriously. And I think that most women stay very quiet about them because they feel like, oh, you know, I'm supposed to be having these. But if they're intense um, and if they're frequent, you must speak to your GP about them because, um, you know, you want to feel good. You know, you don't want them to constantly be interrupting your life 
and the interrupting your sleep, which of course is going to affect your weight and your stress level, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of what can you do to feel better and to get them to kind of calm down, um, you know, soy and other foods with um, other foods with phytoestrogens in them, such as flaxseed, um, are often touted as solutions to hot flashes, but they don't work in every single woman. And even the, the soy, you know, commodity boards will tell you the same thing. The people who want you to eat more soy, they'll tell you this research isn't there yet. Um, however, there's absolutely no reason to avoid soy, you know. And they can soy. be a great part of a plant-based diet. Yeah. And Excellent it, source right. of plant protein. Right. And it, you may get some relief from it, but don't think it's the magic bullet. It, it really isn't. Um, and then a lot of women do find that, um, you know, excess alcohol and excess caffeine aggravate um, their um, hot flashes. And also just recently, um, and we did include this in the book about exercise, but just recently there was another study that I put on my list of things to read, but haven't gotten around to it, that alluded to the fact that regular exercise also helped, you know, mitigate them. Um, it, nothing makes them go away entirely except, I think, for, you know, replace hormone uh, therapy. Yeah, I mean, if, um, if women are really suffering with them, they should speak to their, you know, their GP or whoever, their gynecologist, to talk about hormone replacement therapy to kind of alleviate the misery. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we have evidence to suggest that getting rid of them with hormone therapy reduces um, any cardiovascular risk that may be associated right. with extreme persistent hot flashes right but certainly nobody should suffer like that i mean if somebody's not sleeping you know talk about a a recipe for weight gain which you know is likely going to exacerbate a lot of things yeah so so let's say you have them i mean we don't mean to scare anybody but um let's say you have them they are persistent they are very severe um you should again as we said speak to your um gp about them um because he needs to know it's part of your cardiovascular uh, disease risk profile. You know, there's never any one thing that, you know, causes that is, is the risk factor. It's really a constellation of factors that go together um, that, that concern your cardiovascular health. So and uh, definitely- there are likely women that have severe hot flashes that don't necessarily indicate, you know, so this is early research and Mm -hmm. something that's worth paying attention to. But, you know, there'll always be women who feel like they do everything quote unquote right and still get hot flashes. Mm -hmm. So that those in particular are good candidates for conversations about hormone replacement therapy if it's or some other um, medical management if it's appropriate. Yeah, for me, um, acupuncture helped. Um, Oh, good. Yeah. So, uh, Liz, where you were mentioning frequent, could you give my listeners an idea of, of what is frequent? So you were saying when you have, if they're frequent or severe, make sure you're in touch with your, your GP. I think the definition is like three to five a day, three okay. to five hot flashes. And then, you know, there are some, I've had hot flashes that, that are just kind of annoying. I mean, and then I imagine the severity is really all about just, you know, being drenched, being really... Um, you know, what the other thing that happens is blood flows away from your brain. Um, your body thinks that it's it's heating up, and it's not. It th- it's falsely thinking that it's heating up, and so it's telling the rest of your body cool the core temperature down. And the way it does that is it redirects the blood 
not all of it, but the, to your skin and yeah. you, you opens up your blood vessels, you sweat and you start to feel cooler. So a severe one, I would imagine, was one where you really felt like kind of loopy and maybe a little bit lightheaded from the whole, you know, severity of it. So, yeah. you know, you, you don't you do not have to live with these, um, you, you know, silently. You really should tell somebody. Because there are other medications. I mean, we're not doctors no. and we try to stay in our lane because right. we get really annoyed when people get in our lane and they don't belong <laughs> here. But there are other medications besides hormone replacement mm-hmm. um, for hot flashes because not all women are candidates for it. You know, I also right. work in a cancer treatment facility and many of these women would not be el- you know, eligible for that kind of therapy. So there are other things available that, that they should have a conversation about if, if warranted. Okay. Yeah, perfect. And so one of the other chapters that you have is dialing back the diabetes risk. And I know, Hilary, you had spoken about you'd written a book on uh, pre-diabetes, etc. Um, would you like to talk to us a little bit about that, about the, the risk there and maybe some dietary adjustments that people might make? So we know as we get older, we are at higher risk of developing a condition called insulin resistance. That's really common because it, it evolved in humans to help us like survive droughts and famines, but it's not a great uh, genetic uh, tendency when you live in 2022 developed countries where many modern lifestyle factors can aggravate insulin resistance. So those would be things like progressive weight gain over time, um, sedentary lifestyle, um, consuming diets that are very high in, in refined carbohydrates, low in dietary fiber. So again, it's a lot of the same sort of things that's good for everything, you know, kind of plant-based eating with a particular eye on being mindful of the the quality of the carbohydrates that you're consuming most of the time. So we're definitely the 80-20 people. We're much more interested in what are people doing 80% of the time than 20% of the time. Um, And then spreading them out over the day. So at any given time, your body is kind of managing a reasonable amount of carbohydrate to regulate your blood sugar. So... When they do research on people who have pre-diabetes, so you know, everyone who has diabetes prior to that had pre-diabetes, and everyone with pre-diabetes prior to that had insulin resistance, but their pancreas, which is the organ that makes insulin, was youthful and energetic enough to compensate for it. But that can tucker your pancreas out, which can lead to pre-diabetes and diabetes. So there's been some really well done research on pre-diabetes and how to reverse it the diabetes prevention program being the biggest and most recent. And they find that losing as little as 7% of your weight through diet and lifestyle, you know, regular physical activity. We talk a lot about strength training, really important for blood glucose regulation in addition to the cardio stuff, um, can be enough to reverse prediabetes and prevent diabetes from progressing. So it's more of the same increased physical activity is the most natural way to lower your blood sugar. Um, plus it's great stress management. A lot of women report eating out of duress. Um, so, you know, it's just basically taking these concepts and, and being a little bit more mindful if you're particularly at risk to spread your carbohydrates out over the day, pair them with some protein to feel a little more full and really get serious again about what a plant forward eating is generally considered five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables a day. So at least two servings of fruit, you know, have one in the first half of the day, one in the second half of the day, and try to eat vegetables at other meals besides just dinner. Those simple things, along with, you know, take some walks, can really make a big difference in people's risk for diabetes. 
And so, without wanting to scare people, uh, how would somebody know if they maybe had insulin resistance or pre-diabetes? What would be a sign that they should go to their medical practitioner and get checked out? Well, their medical practitioner is probably the one who's going to find it because increasingly, unfortunately, when people get physical exams, they often get blood work done. So the the most available means of screening for prediabetes is a fasting glucose test. So fasting blood sugar test. Fasting meaning you haven't eaten in eight or 10 hours. Um, Or also increasingly in this country, anyway, they're using a test called the hemoglobin A1C, which is like a snapshot of what your blood sugar has been for the previous three months. So a lot of um, physicians are just doing those routinely. So if somebody is fasting, haven't eaten all night, their blood sugar should be 99 or less. If it's between 100 and 125, it's prediabetes. If it's 126 or higher, it would be considered diabetes. With the A1C, it would be 5.6 or less. So again, the units may be different in the UK, um, but there's criteria for normal A1C, prediabetes in the US anyway, it's 5.7 to 6.4. And then in the um, 6.5 or higher is considered diagnostic for diabetes. So pretty uninvasive testing um, that generally is just thrown in with, you know, those cholesterol profiles and all those other things that they would routinely do as part of physical. I don't think that people should let their doctors tell them their blood glucose levels are normal. I think they should always get the number, right? Because you could be yeah. at, Sometimes it yeah. doesn't get addressed. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and the earlier you work to re- reverse prediabetes, the less likely it is it's going to keep progressing. So, I mean, if, you know, studies tell us that people with prediabetes who don't address it, a significant chunk of those people will have diabetes within, you know, three to five years. So certainly the earlier, the better. And sometimes physicians... I don't know why they're, you know, I think they're increasingly embracing this idea of, the, you know, the pre-diabetes is the warning shot over the bow. But I have seen many patients who um, I'm looking at their numbers and they're not normal. And, and in addition, I can see they often have many other risk factors. And for some reason, it's not coming up in conversations. OK, so I, I would find out what those units are in the UK because I'm pretty sure they're different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are different, and and I but I know when you get the report here in Ireland, anyway, you will um it'll show you where you are, but it'll also tell you what the range, what range you should be within, so you can see if you're top of that range, bottom, you know that type of thing. But um I don't know off the top of my head exactly what they are, but um yeah they. So the so the message there is, and it's the same here, if the if it's like got an H next to it, or it's red, or some indication that it's <laughs> elevated. Don't assume just because they don't say anything doesn't mean that it's not something that you should be paying attention to. Um, so, Hillary and Liz, if we're, if we're looking for a, a guide to health, there used to be uh, a lot by the, the BMI score. Um, and then I'm hearing now that it's more about the circumference of the waist. Is there any particular guide that you could give someone to to see where they are to check themselves in? The, the problem with it is once we start talking those kinds of numbers, it can be so scary to people that I think it can be an, an, an obstacle to starting the conversation. But I don't know. This may have a different Well, um, from a from a scientific like research standpoint, I can tell you like Hillary, his point is very good um, that, that using both um, is very helpful. So I think I mentioned to you before that 
your BMI could follow, you know, fall in that so-called health, quote unquote, healthy range, but you could have a big, you know, you could have an expanding waistline. And that's a sign of that belly fat, that dangerous visceral fat that we were talking about earlier. So no one measurement, I think, tells it all. Um, I think both of them are important. There's a lot wrong with the BMI. Um, uh, there, it, It's for certain uh, racial and ethnic groups, it doesn't work out exactly for very, um, you know, muscular uh, people, women, it may make it seem like you're overweight. So there seems to be, you know, there's got to be some mediation in there. I mean, numbers are numbers, but um, I mean, we have it in the book, don't we? We do have we it. Do have book. explain my, the BMI? My yep. concern about it. So I'm somebody who's in the trenches with people all the time, and if you're already sort of traumatized by having to step on the scale in your office, the oh, yeah. visual. Of now them saying, okay, give me your waist in a tape measure. Yeah. It's not that it's not important because it is important, but with my, you know, people who have uh, excess weight and belly fat, they generally know it without like yeah. too much measuring. Mm-hmm. So I often encourage my patients and I'll say, I know it can be hard, but try not to hook the healthy eating and, and exercise caboose to the weight loss train solely because we know regardless of what um, a woman's weight is, if she's eating healthier, if she's regularly physically active, that's going to improve her health. That's going to benefit her insulin resistance. That's going to benefit her, you know, lipid profiles and all that, no matter what her weight is. So yes, the weight is important, but the more we focus so much on that, um, we sometimes deprive people of trying to eat healthier and exercising and noticing how they feel in their body physically and mentally without so much drilling down on the, the metrics. Okay. Yep. Yep. I understand. Good point. Um, Okay. So next we have, what are your thoughts on snacks? Do you think people should, yeah, you answer, you tell me what you love snacks. We love them. There's absolutely nothing wrong with snacking. Um, But two things about snacking. One is that if your meals are satisfying and they contain enough protein, enough carbohydrate, enough healthy fat, you know, chances are you won't be, you know, trying to go to the vending machine or, uh, you know, go get a, a pastry someplace uh, between meals. So our our first, you know, um, piece of advice is always make your meals satisfying, eat and eat regularly. Now, if you're going to snack, um, make a, make a snack like a, a mini meal, like a nutritious mini meal. So, you know, to us, snacks are not... Um, you know, the crackers or or chips, snack chips um, or candy or cookies. I mean, those are more like treats. Those are not things that you should eat on a daily basis in order to satisfy your hunger. Like I don't go looking for a brownie when I'm hungry. I go looking for a well, brownie. Well, you would if you were starving. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, part right. of, part of right. the role of snacks is to keep your hunger and, you know, in check. Right. Because if people, women are great you know, restrictors until about 4.30 in the afternoon when their blood sugar dumps and they're starving. And then as a result, we often reactively overeat because we're not eating often enough. So a well-placed snack, if you think of your hunger on like a one to 10 scale, where, you know, zero to two is not hungry because I ate one of those satisfying meals Liz is alluding to. The other end of that spectrum is an eight or a 10. That's ravenous. Ravenous and starved is not a psychological place. It is a physical condition where your blood sugar is low, your hunger hormones are screaming, 
and you're not going to be driving the bus anymore. Ergo, the, bon the brownies are going to yeah. look awesome. So if when you're like a five or a six, you can have, you know, um, some like whole grain crackers with protein, like crackers and cheese. So cottage cheese. Yeah, yeah cottage, cottage cheese. cheese. Yogurt. Yeah. Um, Greek yogurts, particularly protein. Icelandic yogurt. Um, apple, you know, an apple with some peanut butter, a piece of toast with some nut butter on it. Um, you know, they're. They can be calories well spent if they prevent overeating an extra 600 calories at dinner because you waited too long and you're starved. And also they can be a great way to get more fruits and vegetables into your diet. Mm -hmm. kind of and whole grains. Get those numbers up. And even protein. I mean, it's a way to work in protein too. So. Okay, great. And in terms of um, intermittent fasting where you might be, you know, eating within a certain window, what are your thoughts on that? Um. The research says that intermittent fasting doesn't work any better than just kind of mild calorie restriction on a daily basis. Now, having said that, there are some people that do better, you know, by limiting their eating times because they learn to push most of their calories up, you know, earlier in the day. So that's our that's our prefer that's our preference, you know, maybe to yeah. eat for like on a 12 hour clock not within a four hour period or a six hour period or even an even eight, an eight hour, hour period, period. It's i mean i think too restrictive i think for people with insulin resistance it does make sense to be mindful of this because insulin sensitivity probably in most people is better earlier in the day and progressively gets worse as the day goes on so for people that are either trying to do what they think is the right thing by doing like eight hour intermittent fasting where they skip breakfast and then they eat between like 12 and eight. Um, you know, really, it really prevents you from metabolizing a lot of your nutritious food even mm -hmm. uh, at a time of day where your body is better, better able to do it. So I think that the intermittent fasting in terms of aligning it with insulin sensitivity makes a lot of sense to get up. And I mean, I read a, a study recently that suggested that people with type two diabetes this study showed that their insulin sensitivity was the best at seven o'clock in the morning. So that's just one study, but it kind of points to um, metabolism does change based on uh, the time of day. And so particularly for people with insulin resistance problems, probably starting to eat earlier and trying to eat enough. So the dinner for the most part is it. And then you can give your body at least a 12 hour break uh, makes a lot of sense. Okay. But the, the thing about intermittent fasting in its purest sense is it's about when you eat and not what you eat. And so if you just say, well, I'm just going to eat for six hours during the day and I'll eat whatever I want because intermittent fasting works, that's how it works. You probably won't be getting, you know, all the nutrition that you need mm -hmm. either. So, you know, what we're talking about is a really modified time restricted kind of a, a way of looking at it. Like Hillary said, giving yourself 12 hours off from food, um, but during those 12 hours, getting all the nutrition that you need. So not just saying, well, it doesn't matter what I eat I'm, because I'm not eating for those 12 hours, I'm gonna magically lose weight. You, you won't. It, it, you know, it's all part of trying to develop something for yourself that feels sustainable. Because I've seen people lose a chunk of weight with tightly dialing, you know, um, eating between say eight in the morning and three in the afternoon. 
you know, just in terms of the flow of most people's lives, I don't think that's going to be sustainable for most people. And I've seen people lose a lot of weight and then regain it when they can't deal with not eating dinner with their family anymore. Right. So, I mean, I think we're always looking for the realistic middle ground where there could be some benefit while still allowing you to enjoy a meaningful, your life, happy life, you know, without being too stressed about food all the time. Okay, great. And I think I could talk for ages and ages about different bits and pieces, but, um, I suppose one of the things I wanted to ask you was I would always ask my guests, can they give me three tips that somebody could action now to improve their health? So what would be your three top tips? I I think doing simple things like eat two pieces of fruit a day, one in the first half of the day, one in the second half of the day. Boom. Now you have two out of like the two to four. You know, if if in starting where you are, you know, same thing with vegetables, if you're only if you're not eating them at all, then just add them to dinner, you know, so that that would be a fruit and vegetable. Tip. That's one tip. Yeah. OK. Um, you know, figure out how you will work 30 minutes of physical activity into your day. Then that could be three 10 minute walks. You know, if you're not doing anything now, um, that's definitely one way to get started. And as Hillary alluded to many times, it helps to decrease your uh, blood glucose levels, which reduces your um risk for insulin resistance. And you have the third. Uh, I would say don't look at sleep as a luxury. It's an actual important piece of of physical and mental health. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we always have to remember that prior to Thomas Edison, you know, the sun went down, the campfire went out and people weren't up doing all kinds of things in the dark to the wee hours mm-hmm. and to, you know, there's tons of evidence that people that work nights and don't get enough sleep have more health problems. So, you know, just trying to be um, mindful that sleep should be, uh, you know, it's annoying to tell women who are having hot flashes and all that, (laughs) just sleep more. But I think, you know, I see a lot of women that are staying up way late and have to get up early and they, and that's stressful to the body that Mm -hmm. will change your cortisol levels that will double down on your belly fat accumulation. So Sleep's not a luxury. It's a real important piece of staying healthy for a lifetime. Great. I love that one. So our three are start simple, like trying to add in two pieces of fruit in the day, one in the morning, one in the evening. Sorry. Number two is figure out how you're going to get 30 minutes of exercise into your uh, day every day. And number three is don't look at sleep as a luxury. It is essential for your mental health. Does that sound good? And physical health. Yes. Um, And your physical health. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. So thank you so much, ladies. Um, is there anything else you wanted to, to add before we finish up? Yeah, I just want to say as a kind of like a fourth tip is don't expect perfection. Um, you know, this is a, a new stage of your life and your learning and that's okay. And there'll be trial and error, but, um, in the end, you will achieve a new balance. Um, it'll, it may take a while, but, um, you know, hang in there and focus on your health. Great. I love it. Well, there's two of you, so I'll allow four points. That's okay. <laughs> Can I just say one other thing? I knew it. I knew it. I knew she would add one more thing. Go ahead. Liz and I have said many times, we somehow in the title of this book should have incorporated that this is not just for the menopause transition. This is for the rest of your life. So the information that we offer is for healthy aging. Um, 
there's there's nothing about it that's not consistent with all the evidence on reducing the risk of Alzheimer's disease, managing your cardiovascular diabetes risk, lowering your risk of cancer. It's it's all the same stuff, and this uh, all becomes more important as we get older. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> so. Thank you very much, ladies. And I'll pop the links to your book and your social media below in the um, show notes. And okay. uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm well glad it all worked out. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast on Cook, Eat, Nourish with me, Fiona Staunton of Fiona's Food for Life. I'd really appreciate if you would subscribe, rate and review the podcast to help spread the word. And if you pop over to my website, fionasfoodforlife.ie, you'll find lots of recipes, videos, inspiration and upcoming courses. Thanks a million.